We're all Wyandotte County all the time. Today, we're going to talk about development in the western part of Waiko and a big political battle in the central part. Welcome. You are on Deep Background. Well, greetings. You're on Deep Background for September 1st, 2020. September. What what has happened to this year? The calendar's just flying by, of course. Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board. Derek Donovan also with the board joining us today, as he always does. And then my good friend Steve Bachrot, uh with us to talk about a couple of stories that he and others have worked on over the past couple of weeks. First, a big development out in uh, uh, Wyandotte County, the so-called Schlitterbahn uh, project or the revisiting, if you will, of that project. Let's talk about that first. We'll talk a little bit about the curve uh, fluffle over Aaron Coleman after the break. But for now, what's going on with the with the um, Schlitterbahn land, Steve? Well, the Schlitterbahn land is a bit of a conundrum for the unified government and for Schlitterbahn themselves because you know they still own the land. And uh, longtime listeners will recall that the water park that was uh, very much hyped and opened in 2009 um has since closed in the aftermath of a tragedy that occurred in 2016 and so you know that it's 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 a it's a bad situation for the unified government to have sort of this prime real estate that's hung up in a shuttered business that cannot be easily taken over and turned uh either recontinued or turned into something else let me just stop it there real quick because for first-time listeners or those unfamiliar with where schlitterbahn is it's out really at the intersection of I-70 and I-435, where the soccer stadium is, where the baseball stadium is, where the big shopping district is. Uh, yep. And yet on the other side of the, of the highway, you've got <laughs> uh, the closed Schlitterbahn and the horse race t- uh, track, dog track, which has also been closed for you know two decades. So that part of the area really needs help. Yeah, and so... Um so the these two men who uh, have ties to Sporting Kansas City, uh, and they formed this new company called Homefield. They're proposing this idea. They call it, you know, informally, this youth sports mecca will have soccer and football, baseball, lacrosse fields, and paddleboarding and kayaking and all these different things, and something called dragon boat racing, which I don't fully understand. It's a three hundred thirty million dollar development that they're pitching to the unified government. And as these things go, they are also asking for uh, help from the taxpayers, uh, about $130 million worth of uh, assistance through a program that I've written about a bunch and we've talked about from time to time on this show called the Starbond Program. And really, you know, almost everything that you talked about, about those developments that are out there, uh, a whole lot of them are funded by the Starbond Program. Let's come back to that in a minute because that's an incredibly important part of the story, uh, Steve. But first, would would developers tear down Schlitterbahn uh, and just use the land? Do they want to reconfigure it, rehab it? Is a water park part of all of this uh, proposal, or is it just tear it down and and start throwing up, comp, you know, fields for competition? Uh, I think it's mostly fields for competition, so you'd have to scrub a lot of that. Uh infrastructure that 
the Schlitterbahn folks put in. Now, it's important to remember that Schlitterbahn owns a whole lot of land out there. I think they own like 230 acres, and it's not just where the park was built. Um, so they control still a lot of the uh, prime real estate out there. But for the most part, you know, they would be good. This development would get rid of a lot of the reminders, the physical reminders of the uh, of the old Schlitterbahn Park. And you would think that the the Schlitterbahn owners uh, would be willing sellers in in some ways because you know it's closed. It's not producing any revenue. It it, it might be an investment for them, but by and large, it seems like a chapter they'd want to close. Yeah, I mean, it's an asset on their balance sheet, but it's not really doing a whole lot. And, you know, Schlitterbahn's downsized quite a bit. They sold a whole bunch that, you know, they sold some of their Texas parks too to a company called Cedar Fair, uh, which does, they, they own Worlds of Fun. They do a lot of amusement park rides. And they had actually had an option to buy the, uh, the ground at uh, where Schlitterbahn is in KCK when they were buying up a bunch of their uh, Schlitterbahn's Texas properties, but they ended up not exercising it. Uh, for reasons that weren't entirely clear, yeah, uh, at, least, at least to me, yeah. But 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 you would think that there would be, you know, uh, I it, it you know just based on what you know about the uh, Texas operation, that the idea of putting Schlitterbahn behind you is would be important, particularly in an age of COVID when theme parks are going to be one assumes a bit of a struggle anyway. Talk to us about Starbonds, though. Again, for for new listeners, those not familiar. Uh, it's the old, uh, you know, take take anticipated revenues and pay off bonds issued for a project. Is that basically how they work here? Yeah, basically, you know, the star bonds are pretty simple. You uh, you sell a certain number of bonds. Say you need ten million dollars to do a project. You sell five million dollars worth of star bonds. So that gives you five million dollars up front with whatever you get from the bank or whatever cash you have, and. Over time, all the sales tax, you know, the state and local sales tax for every dollar that's spent there then goes back to repaying those investors who bought the $5 million in bonds. Um, and for that reason, it's considered this a really powerful inducement. And because of that, when star bonds were originally designed, the promise was this has to be an exceptional project. It has to attract people, you know, like 30% of your visitors have to come from 100 miles away. You know, kind of a tourism and uh, you know destination type development, and we should explain, uh, Steve, why that's so important. Because if you're doing a project and the revenue you get in sales taxes is only coming from your region, then it's arguable that spending is just coming from other places. And it's a net loss to the government because the sales taxes that might have been paid in place A are now going to place B, but being used to pay off those bonds. And so, so the idea is you've got to attract new money, right? Yeah, they want people from you know another state. They want people coming from far away. Who would you not know, normally be buying in those areas. Right, exactly. Um, now, you know, and, and to your point, what it means is that every dollar spent there does not go to the general fund like it usually does to pay for your streets and your sewers and trash pickup and all that sort of thing. And so that's sort of the deal with the taxpayers is, you know, we'll, we'll use this tool to attract this great development. And then, you know, once the bonds are paid off, we'll be getting more money that we would have never gotten. Right. Right. And the idea again is you provide jobs and you have development and people, you know, you take land that's just sitting there and you make it something but it's really of little cost to the to the 
government because you're luring new people in to spend their money. If that doesn't work, if you don't lure those people in, if they just come from another shopping center, then you end up like other projects that we're aware of in the Kansas City area. Talk about that a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you know, to your point, that's one of the big criticisms of the Starbond program uh, is you know, the first time they used it was for the Speedway project uh, that's out there um, in Western Wyandotte County. And, you know, nobody could really argue that that wasn't an exceptional project. I mean, you know, it's uh, there isn't another Speedway anywhere close around. It brings in, you know, a, couple, you know, a few races a year in ordinary circumstances. And, you know, hundreds of, th- you know, 100,000 people or more will come out for those NASCAR. And at, the time, and at the time it was built, it was, I mean, NASCAR was the coming thing across the country. Right. And so it made all kinds of sense for that project. Right. And then they used Starbonds for Village West, which was the shopping district around it, which is, hey, this is, you know, if we're going to have all these people coming out here, let's give them some restaurants and places to shop. And then it bled into, you know, the, the park where Sporting Kansas City plays. But one of the criticisms of Starbonds is since those big ticket projects, there have been a lot of developments that sort of uh, come up with these ideas that they can sell as being big destination or tourism draws, but aren't really and or arguably are not really the types of things that are going to bring the type of traffic that we anticipate. And so there's there's a sense that there's some mission creep out there with the program that you know these are now starting to fund fairly ordinary projects. And, and talk to us about the project, the Prairie Fire. I think it's Prairie Fire, right? Out, out on the south part of town. Yeah, Prairie Fire is a good example of, you know, in Overland Park, they built this shopping uh, district. And um, is and to, for the Starbond portion of it, they built a museum that was supposed to host um, traveling exhibits from the American Natural History Museum. You know, the... When, when they sold those bonds, there were these projections that were made that, you know, they would bring in X, you know, X number of travelers and generate, you know, X thousands and millions of dollars. And that hasn't really worked out. Um, you know, they have not quite realized or really <laughs> realizing those expectations. And so, you know, Prairie Fire gets sort of held out sometimes as an example of what I was just talking about, about these projects that, are not quite maybe as exceptional as what lawmakers had in mind when they passed the Starbond program in the late 1990s. Now, no discussion of Schlitterbond right now can be had without talking about Jeff Henry. What has been the latest with him, just kind of to update people on his colorful background? Yeah, so Jeff Henry is, uh, you know, my understanding is that he's kind of stayed fairly quiet. He's He's got some health issues. His case came, uh, so he also had a, uh, a criminal case against him in Johnson County that came up for some air a couple weeks ago. Um, he had a plea setting and the, the crime he's accused of is basically having drugs and uh, paying for sex uh, with, you know, an alleged prostitute at a hotel in Merriam, which he was staying at when he was in town for a separate criminal issue that he had faced up in Wyandotte County uh, related to the death of that, uh, of a 10 year old boy who died on a water slide that they had up there. 
because Henry was the designer of that slide and people will remember he was hyping up how dangerous it was in reality TV in the months leading up to the opening of the park. They wanted people to have this element of danger and I don't remember which show it was on, but they showed one of the rafts going airborne and isn't this great, isn't this exciting that people are going to be able to come out here to this and he was sort of the main architect of that. Yeah, it was was an idea that he had uh, come up with and put into reality. And it was supposed to be one of the big draws for the water park out there, you know, the world's tallest water slide. And the kid ended up dying on it. And he was then accused and charged with second degree murder because, you know, the allegation was that it was a, you know, recklessly designed slide without much consideration to safety. And that, you know, when, when the kid died, they were trying to cover it up and, so he, he got charged with that. That case ended up getting, those charges ended up getting dismissed because the state attorney general had uh, improperly influenced the grand jury, a judge found in uh, bringing those charges. But separately, he's got this uh, Johnson County issue um, that he has pending charges against. He was set for a plea hearing uh, recently, but they put it off. He's hoping to avoid prison. He's got health issues. He's 65, I believe. And his lawyer saying, you know, he doesn't want to go to prison. And, you know, they're they're talking with the prosecutors in Johnson County about what they may or may not do. And that may come to a resolution later on or it could go to a trial sometime next year. Let's move back quickly before we take a break to the to the project, Steve. Uh, uh, Final question. Do you have can you give us a bit of a sense uh, about how the government, Wyandotte County Unified Government, sees this project? Do they think it's a good idea? And what will legislators st- say uh, if they go in for a huge star bond issue at precisely the time when the budget is a disaster? Yeah, so it's pretty early on. I mean, the state has not received the application for the star bonds yet. Um, the local government, the unified government, you know, the from what I understand, sees this as another piece uh, in all the development that's out there. And, you know, youth sports is sort of this exploding uh, uh, accompaniment in some of these bigger ticket developments. But isn't that the problem everywhere? I mean, every county is doing, I mean, you know, Johnson County is big on it and Independence is, you know, Jackson County wants to do youth sports and north of the river, they're building soccer fields with taxpayer money. I mean, it isn't as if they have uh, these guys have an exclusive claim. Hell, the Kemper Arena is no longer the Kemper Arena because it's a youth sports mecca. Yeah, I mean, you know, when when I was a kid and playing soccer, we just played on grass fields and parks. Right. Um, you know, the newer kind of thing is, you know, AstroTurf fields and lighting and all these kind of like, you know, clubhouse for the parents, you know, to buy a snack or something when uh, uh, when their kids are playing, they're, they're, they're much more elaborate things than I was used to, uh, uh, when I was playing youth sports and yeah, there's a, there's a lot of demand for those, as you pointed out. I mean, Overland Park sort of, uh, was one of the first ones to have these modern, you know, 24, uh, soccer fields, you know, tournament grade fields, and it's been fairly successful for them. And so I think a lot of other cities are trying to, uh, Uh, replicate that success in the metro area. I think a lot of people who don't have children in their lives would be surprised at the prominence of the sports leagues that operate outside the school system these days as well. That is a fairly new development. People spend a huge amount of money on those activities. Yeah, and I guess my point there, I agree with that. The, The problem is, who is the last person to build a soccer field that needs to be built? I mean, at some point, 
you, you know, you don't need anymore. And, and someone comes along and says, I'll build you another 20 or whatever. And they're left holding the bag, but maybe we, may, we, we don't know whether we're that at that point yet or not. It may be that the demand would be high enough for this project. And for that matter, other projects as well. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about Aaron Coleman candidate for the state legislature. You're on deep background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to the star for $1.99 total. That's right, you get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to KansasCity.com slash background. And hey, thanks for listening. Okay, back now on Deep Background, Dave Helling with the Star's editorial board, Derek Donovan, my friend and colleague from the board, and Steve Vockrod, a reporter at the Star, and a very good one at that. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit, Steve. And before we do that, let's tip our cap to our colleague, Michael Ryan, who has written a little bit about the story we're going to talk about. And that's a guy named Aaron Coleman, who won a surprising Democratic primary for the state legislature and a can o worms opened shortly thereafter. Tell us about what happened and where we're at in that story. Yeah, so um, the Aaron, Aaron Coleman is running, uh, he's a 19 year old candidate. He had run a, a, a write-in effort uh, for governor when several teenagers were running for governor in 2018. And he filed to run for the Kansas 37th House District, which is you know, it covers parts of Turner and, um, you know, kind of uh, South Central Wyandotte County, I would say. And he was running against a guy named Stan Fraunfelter. And Stan Fraunfelter is a, he's been in office since 2007. He's kept that seat largely without opposition. He's a Democrat. And, you know, he's kind of, I would, I think it's safe to say that Stan Fraunfelter is one of these kind of old guard Wyandotte County Democrats um, you know, pro-labor, but he's not, you know, on the social stuff, he's not particularly liberal or conservative, although, you know, you could, you could argue in either way. I mean, he, he, he's very emblematic of that uh, kind of 90s era Wyandotte County Democrat. Um, and so Aaron Coleman, who's this 19-year-old, he's running on a very progressive plank. He's, you know, he wants Medicare or Medicaid for all. He's talking about, you know, Green New Deal and, you know, very, uh, very on the social policies, he's easily to the left of uh, Stan Fraunfelter. So on election night, I'm paying some attention to this race. And when the uh, unofficial results come out, Aaron Coleman is won by one vote. And the Democratic establishment in Kansas is shocked, uh, crestfallen, even in some corners. I would now, say. Dude, quickly, it was like 850 to 849, wasn't it? It wasn't like thousands of votes were cast in that race. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like a huge turnout, but, you know, I, for, for a primary in that district, it was okay. I mean, it's 
it, it, it was, we, we would like to see greater participation, but that's not the worst turnout I've ever seen. Right, right, right. And so, yeah, it was narrow. And so, you know, of course we're going to get a recall or not, a, sorry, not a recall. You know, the, there's the possibility of a recount and, you know, ballots coming in late uh, through the mail and Coleman's lead just grows from five votes, one vote to five votes. And then the final count was 14 votes. And so Stan frowned, but in way I should stop for a second and back up and say that there were some issues around Aaron Coleman uh, right around election time that had surfaced. There was a, you know, there were some social media postings that he had made uh, on Facebook in which he had uh, commented at a former GOP lawmaker named John Whitmer. He's kind of a flamethrower. Um, but Aaron Coleman wrote something to the effect that, you know, I think it would be funny if you got COVID and died. And so the Democrats were not happy about that. And then it also emerged that there were women who made, uh, who were girls at the time these uh, uh, incidents came up. The, you know, they said that one said that Aaron Coleman had obtained a nude photo of her when she was in middle school and went to her and said, if you don't send me more of these types of photos, I'm going to circulate the one I have around. And so it was a, a revenge porn or blackmail allegation. There was another allegation that Aaron Coleman in middle school was, uh, had mercilessly bullied her, uh, you know, made graphic remarks about her to the point that she uh, contemplated suicide. And Aaron Coleman, for his part, he acknowledged, uh, uh, he acknowledged those, said that he was trying to grow, uh, you know, that he was, he, he was a different person then, that he had had some trauma in his childhood and that, uh, but there were also people who said, well, look, this guy's not, a, this guy is not fit for office. So that's kind of in the backdrop of all of this. Um, and so when Coleman finally emerges as the primary winner and there was no Republican who filed against, uh, the, the winner of that Democratic primary, Coleman's looking like he's going to be the winner. He's going to just waltz into office. Well, Stan Fraunfelter says, uh, I'm going to run a write-in campaign. And he gets the support of, uh, you know, some of his allies in the Kansas Democratic Party. To, to right, but there, I mean, we should make clear that there was some, some reaction to Coleman's candidacy after he won, not before, but after from the establishment of the party. And there was also some, wasn't there, Steve? I mean, at one point he said, yeah, I'm getting out. Yeah. So, um, so at one point, you know, he emerges as the winner and then he's, he's getting all, he's getting, there's a lot of uh, condemnation raining down on him uh, in light of these revelations about these uh, uh, things he had done in his past. And, you know, one Sunday he says that he's going to drop out of the race, um, that his dad's in the hospital uh, he'd had a brother who'd committed suicide the year before, uh, said, you know, yeah, look, I need to deal with my family. Uh, this is all too much. I never expected this type of attention. And it got national attention. The New York Times wrote about it. Um, Aaron Coleman did this interview with Glenn Greenwald, who is a, uh, a journalist and commentator who works for The Intercept. Uh, and, you know, the interview was largely along the lines of, you uh, you know, can we hold the uh, behavior of 12, 13, 14 year olds against people when they become adults? Uh, there was also, you know, and I think Greenwald was coming at it from a perspective of, you know, this is what establishment Democrats will do to uh, 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 when, when, a, when a progressive upstart comes up and disrupts the order of things. 
you know, th- those aren't his words, but I'm just generally characterizing right, right, right. But it's like the argument he was making. <laughs> he went ahead and got back in the race. I mean, yeah. so, so the ton of bricks falls on him. The stories are written. He's in the New York Times. And then he's getting out because it's just too much. And then he reconsiders. He gets back in. And the bricks continue to fall, right? I mean, the, the people are now people are lining up to try and either get behind the frown fell to ride in or find some alternative House members are talking about not seating him and other things. Yeah, there's a Republican who's launching a write-in campaign. Now, this is a, a, a reliably blue district, but I think there's some worry uh, among Democrats that the seat somehow gets into play. Um, you know, a reliable seat held by Stan Fraunfelter, who's a reliable Democrat, although, you know, some Democrats don't think he's as liberal as they'd like him to be, um, but he's a Democrat. Uh, and, you know, there's a worry, you know, does, does the seat possibly flip red? Um, not likely. I mean, these writing campaigns are really hard to do. Um, you know, when voters go to the polls, they're going to see one name, and that's going to be Aaron Coleman. Although it is easier in Kansas than in some states to do a write-in, as long as the election board knows what candidate you are voting for, initials, abbreviations do count on a Kansas ballot. Yeah, but even even so, I mean, for people who might not be quite as uh, connected to the issue or who may just think, well, Aaron Coleman did some things and I'm willing to look past that and vote for him. Uh, right. The other problem with write-ins is just... Just quickly, the other problem with write-ins is in an era in which you use sort of a mechanized device, it's just a little counterintuitive for people. It's not like the old days when you wrote out a ballot. It's, I mean, you still have to mark things, but it's just not quite as easy. You have to really want to write in a name to write in a name. That's one of the reasons they're tough. Yeah, and I don't think, I don't think in Kansas that a write-in candidate in this type of scenario has won since 1994. So um, it's rare, but hey, write-in candidates do win sometimes. I think there was, wasn't there an Alaska race several years ago? Um, I think it was a Senate race or governor race uh, right. where there was a successful write-in uh, candidate. It can happen, but, but it's difficult, although the attention paid to this particular uh, uh, contest uh, may, may make it a bit easier, particularly if the Democrats can get organized. On the other hand, Steve, don't, don't you know, merits aside of this guy, isn't there an argument to be made that the will of, of the voters was expressed and it has to be honored? Yeah, that is, I mean, that is a real sense that I hear. I mean, I've got, you know, some of the folks I talk to in Wyandotte County you know, they don't necessarily like Coleman, but they also don't like the idea that, you know, a vote can be overturned or, you know, I mean, there was some talk, as you mentioned, you know, do, you know, should we not seat this guy for, uh, uh, which is sort of a nuclear option that the legislature appears to have. And, you know, and, and, and so some of the folks I'm talking to say, that's just a really bad look. Look, if this guy wins, let him serve his two years, and then somebody can try to primary him uh, in 20, uh, 2022. Yeah. Now, I mean, because you do get a bit of a slippery slope problem. If you start to judge the qualifications of members based on, you know, what they've said, as opposed to illegal behavior or something that's beyond the pale, if you just, 
start having you know law- lawmakers judge their colleagues on what they say, then it can you can really go down a rabbit hole in a big hurry in both parties for that matter. So that becomes a bit more problematic. Have you talked to Aaron Coleman? Do you have a sense of whether he is truly contrite, Steve, or does or do we expect more uh, grenade throwing between now and election day? But yeah, I have talked to him and, you know, I, I think he, you know, he's, he said pretty straightforwardly that he regrets the things that happened in his past. Um, you know, whether he does, I can't get into his head. It's not for me. Correct. To correct. And, and, but, and, but, but you do, I mean, you, I mean, ju- voters will have to judge in some ways, whether he is sincere in his concerns or apologies or whether he's just saying these things. And, and in that sense, there are st- you can hear people say, hey, these are not just problems from middle school, that he has a contemporary problem in his dealings with other people and and uh, that that will become more apparent as we get closer to November 3rd. Right. Um, you know, and it's, it's interesting to see he, he's gone pretty quiet. I mean, he was pretty accessible to the press. And then I think, you know, the, it became a national story. And so, you know, he hasn't returned the last few calls that I've made to him. And I went to his house to try and talk to him about some other allegations that were made. And he didn't want to, it was, I think it was his mom. Somebody came out and said they didn't want to comment. But he has since taken to Twitter and he's starting to be a lot more confrontational about, toward, I would say, the Democratic establishment, which has rejected him. Um, you know, he is, he is uh, very... Is not shy about the his, his policies uh, and the planks that he was running on that I described earlier, which yeah. you know, are, are to the left of most Kansas Democrats. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he is he he's kind of now taking on that establishment now that it's fairly clear that they don't really want much to have to do with them. Okay, we're about out of time, but Derek, I'm sure you'd agree with this, and Steve. Uh, these kinds of episodes are going to become more likely in the years ahead as media loses its ability to really scrutinize candidates at this level, right? I mean, it, you know, we just don't do what we, you know, we used to do state house races, even primaries, you'd assign a reporter and he or she would spend at least some time digging into background, uh, background, uh, issues. It wouldn't always work. We missed stories back then, too, but it does seem like there was more firepower directed at races like this than there is today. Steve, maybe you can go first and then Derek. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is when I started doing reporting professionally in 2005, like, you know, I I remember, you know, we did this. We, we tried to do all those stories about, OK, somebody filed for this race. Who are they? And my observation was typically that people who ran for public office had like a profile, you know, they had served on a planning commission or they had been, you know, the president of a rotary club, kind of some level of civic involvement that you could look at that, you know, kind of gave you some idea of where they were coming from. And what I feel like now is you get a lot of candidates who who don't have a profile. And back, you know, in 2005, as a reporter, that would have been a red flag to me. Right. But now there's kind of people who come out of nowhere all the time. Um, and but but just to finish the thought, Stan Fraunfelter deserves some of the blame in this situation too, right? I mean that's the whole point. He you know he's the opponent, he's the incumbent. He needs yeah. to raise some of this too if there's a concern. Yeah, and he had he had a lot more money than Aaron Coleman did. Um, he 
yeah, the benefits conferred upon you for uh, with the incumbency. But I think it's fair to say that two things. I think my observation is that there is an apparent softening of support for Stan Fraunfelter because he ran for the BPU, uh, the, the public utility um, in Wyandotte County last year, and he lost. Um, and then he loses this primary. So, you know, there there is an issue there with Stan Fraunfelter. And, you know, he's got a campaign consultant, you know, his, his campaign records show that he was paying somebody to help him campaign. Right. He didn't have a website. He had a Facebook site, but you know, that's that, um, you know, not a very visible race. And so, you know, for somebody like Aaron Coleman, who's going to go door to door, who's going to take those steps to get his name out there. And presumably he's got a plank that's appealing to a not insignificant percentage of the uh, uh, 37th district population that's a recipe for something like this to happen. Yeah, and, and, and Derek, just to end our conversation, you were the ombudsman for so very long. We don't cover politics the way we used to. And I'm not picking at the star, that's just true across the across the political sphere, particularly these kinds of races. Around the globe, right. And I mean, they were always the sort of what I call broccoli coverage that, you know, you gotta do it because it's good for you, but very few people read those stories. And we, unfortunately, because of, Internet metrics know that today that, I mean, it's, it's really hard for the average person who's got to put food on the table and, you know, get kids educated and all that to pay attention to all these things that are happening. It's, it's just very difficult. But, it, but, the, but the corollary to that is, and I do think there is an argument to be made, that if, you know, the public doesn't pay a lot of attention and we don't pay a lot of attention, that's no reason for the establishment to overturn the results because they don't like them. I mean, if you, if you don't like them, you know, pay attention and vote more, I guess, is the lesson. Right, Steve? Yeah, I mean, when when you get into this idea that, you know, we're not going to seat somebody who was otherwise qualified, you know, and the only qualification for running for office is that you have to, you know, in most cases, you have to live somewhere, you have to be a certain age. But beyond that, if you get more votes than the other person is, that's you've it. Won. You've game. won. That's how it works, unless you're running for president, in which case the guy with the fewer vote can still win. That's another deep background altogether. Steve Bachram with The Star, thanks so much for being with us to talk about two important issues in Wyandotte County. And my good friend, Derek Donovan, as always, thank you for helping and running the board as well for the podcast. I'm Dave Helling with The Kansas City Star. You have been on Deep Background.